What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories from Scotland. We're in Kirkcudy. Kirkcudy, Kirkcudy, Scotland. Yeah. The way the guy explained it to me yesterday at the bar, he said, you have a friend named Kirk, and you have a friend named Cody. Oh, Kirkcudy. Kirk okay, yeah, got I was it. like, yeah, oh. I know Kirk, and I know Cody. Nice. So. But it's spelled Kirkcaldy. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. A cauldron, so yeah, it's interesting. Where we discuss crypto, filmmaking, all these different topics, and this is like, I'm really excited to be doing this show here uh, in the beautiful Oswald House in, in Scotland, and uh, we're doing a lot of different things. My guest, <laughs> my guest, Tom Malloy, one of my good friends, thank you, thanks for coming back for, thanks for coming back on the show, your second yes, time here. second time, and we had, I think a lot of people really enjoyed the first one because it turned into like a motivational seminar, you know what I mean, yeah. <laughs> which is really nice, and when, uh, yeah. When we did that episode, mm -hmm. um, you know, crypto and Bitcoin was going through some difficult times mm -hmm. before it went started, uh, before we hit that bull market again last mm -hmm. year. And when you were talking about like investing in yourself and human capital and why that's so important, uh, a lot of people took that very seriously because when there's a bear market, you're like, shit, what am I going to do for money? Yeah. 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 No, investing in yourself is a thing. You know, it's that. People obviously want results. They want financial results and things like that and success, but they don't necessarily want to take the path to get there. You know, I always bring up a fun story that um, I used to, you know, that I used to speak to kids, give motivational speeches years and years ago and spoke to over 100,000 kids on staying positive and all that stuff. And I was, I held myself, it was, I'd do an anti-drug speech, but I wasn't from the point that I was some crazy drug user at that point, never done any drugs in my life or anything. So it was like, I got up there and it was a positive role model that people could point to and say, do what he did instead of don't do what he did, right? And so anyway, it, inevitably, when I do a Q&A, somebody would say, how do I become an actor, right? And it, I mean, a thousand times I got asked that question. I used to tell them all the same answer. And at that time, I would say, read this book called Acting as a Business by Brian O'Neill. That was a book, and I believe there's, it's still out there. And I'd say, after you do that, email me and I'll tell you the next step in a thousand times. I, and I mean to be exaggerating, maybe say, you know, anywhere from 500 to a thousand times I got that question and did it. You know how many people emailed me? How many? One. Really? One. So that means that either they just took the advice and, you know, some maybe got the book, didn't read it. Some read the book and then didn't even take it. So one person, and can you believe he's working to this day? He works as like, and he does a lot of background work and he's had some speaking roles in films and speaking roles and stuff. But isn't that funny? That just goes to show that people don't want to take the effort to learn. You really don't want to take the effort to learn sometimes. Uh, it's really interesting. I'm yeah. like, you know, you, you run a, a very successful company called Filmmaking Stuff HQ. Mm -hmm. And you teach a lot of people about filmmaking and the education. You've written a, a best-selling book called, called Bankroll mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, how to raise money for, for films and yeah. all these different things. But more importantly, you're not just an educator, mm -hmm. but we're here in the field. Yeah. We're in Scotland shooting a movie with yeah. my wife, Courtney, yeah. and had a new for black sales. And yes. Yeah. Well, that's a big thing is that, you know, a lot of times, uh, especially with now there's online learning platforms, which is, you know, the, the book bankroll was great, but online learning became such a thing. You know, it's like watching videos. And for us, uh, and I say us meaning Jason Brubaker, who's my partner in filmmaking stuff, which is the free blog, and then filmmaking stuff HQ, which is a membership learning site. Uh, it was the way to put more information up and the film world, as you know, changes, you know, month to month. And when you'd write a book, it would take a year and a half to get it to the bookstores and reviews and all that stuff. And versus 
filmmaking stuff, I could put stuff there right away. I could, I could, you know, if there's new things and new trends that come up, I could put them up there. But um, to your other point, I guess when, (laughs) you know, if an educator versus somebody that's in the street, that's a big issue. You know, I, I met other authors of books because uh, I'd met through book public the, the book publisher, I met other authors, and they were educators, and they had you know they'd write a book on filmmaking, and it's like they made a movie in 1985, yeah. and it's like that's not fair <laughs> to people because you have to be out there. But then there's that conundrum of if I'm there's times where I have to take time off from filmmaking stuff because we're making a movie, you know, and so if you're truly in the field, it's very tough to update current information. But if you're an educator only, you don't know the current information, you know, and that's a problem. So. The, uh, um, there's like so many parallels between crypto and Bitcoin mm-hmm. and, and this industry. Yeah. It, you, you, it moves very fast. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of human capital. It's a lot of like personal relationships. And it's a lot of like being able, you have to stick your neck out. You have to have integrity, mm-hmm. but you also have to make sure that, that people trust you and you can like put all these different parts and all these different movements together. Yeah. You've been in the crypto industry the last year or so. Mm-hmm. How do you feel? I mean, do you like the parallels? Do you like the... I do. I, you know, I always used to say it was, it's a ride. It's an up and down ride. You know, I like playing poker as well. And I think that that they all have things in common because, uh, and I always used to say in poker, I was a great short stack player. Like meaning when my, when my chips were this low, I played the same techniques in the same, same game. Right. Uh, versus other players would get very emotional and make stupid decisions. You know, I just go all in, you know, and then, it, and so the same with crypto, right? If you're short stack, you still take that, and the same with film. Like if you know if you haven't had a film go in a while or something like that, you take the same steps. You know, which may be learning on filmmaking stuff. You know, HQ if you're if you're new to the game, or you're making movies. You take that. You keep putting uh, business plans together and presentations and pitching, or keep trying to make another movie that's going to be successful. Same with crypto. We're in a bear market. It's like you still do the same steps that you would do. What's you know trending? What's this that? The same steps, and if you do that you're consistent throughout the ups and downs. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes yeah. complete yeah. sense. It's like you're always building. You don't change your focus. Mm-hmm. But the, the short stack, when we when I play poker and mm-hmm. I get to the short stack, that's when I play the worst. Yeah, so most people. Most people. That's why I play very well. Yeah, because I don't care. My chip stacks are this, that. I still play the same way I play. Always. Yeah. Can everyone do that, you think? Is that like a trait that everyone can learn? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, it's like the problem, I think, sometimes with the, going back to filmmaking is that what if somebody's not making money from movies? You know, they're making a small movie or something like that. They're trying to live off of that. And they're trying to make a living. It's very tough for them to do the same grind. And again, it's like they're short stacked in life. And so they get emotional and they may, you know, try something. I remember when I was first try- starting out, and you and I have talked about this recently, is that I couldn't say no to things, right? Like I used to consult on on um, films. And now it's, I, I just unfortunately can't do it anymore. There's no time. And this was when I was trying to get some revenue from that. This and is based your 18th on my experience. It's my 18th film produced. Yeah, yes. And, uh, but I'm talking about like maybe going back about now 14 years or so. I was living in Los Angeles and I had done some films. I've been in this business 20 years. And so I would say I'd consult on your movie. And it was like an hourly rate. It was nothing, no huge fee or something. Like it was almost like an entertainment attorney. The problem is sometimes I'd hear the movie and it was a disaster and the people had no idea what they were doing and it was a nightmare. And I wish at the time I could have been like, you know what? I can't help you, but I needed the money. You know what I mean? Like, so that was a problem. And so now I would say, and so I get it when people are making films or they're in crypto investing and they need, they need to make the money. I get it. You may have to play differently. But the thing that changed for me is when I started really enjoying the journey and also the ability to say no and go, 
this project doesn't really make sense. You know what I mean? Like now on filmmaking stuff, we have a level of membership that's like an elite membership where you can have 20 minutes with me every, you know, two weeks or something like that. And I'll give you specific advice. I also have the power to say, you, even though you signed up for that membership, we have to downgrade you because yeah. I don't want to, you know, the, if I can't help you with your movie and you're, you know, in these crazy ambitions, you know, walk away from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You, have, you have hundreds and hundreds of members and, yeah. and, and they come in and, and and so are these people folks who who are making films, who are investing in them? Well, no, they're not, they're making the films, they're not investing in them. But what's cool is that, you know, it's funny that you say with the membership is that we have something, and when I talked about people participating, we have something where once a week, or once every two weeks, we do a, a video mastermind call where Jason and I get on and there's everybody's up at the video, we do a Google Meet and they ask questions. I would say a third of our membership does that, which is fine, it's fine, you know, but some people need community more and then some people just want to watch videos and learn lessons which is great ultimately the membership serves both but it, the bottom line is when some people need their handheld a little bit more and have a question that they can ask me and it's like you know and i know that question was answered in so and such video but it's like here let me tell you exactly this is how you do it you get funded development and all that so our members that are on the video sessions are usually the ones i mean i would say 90 percent of the ones that come on the video are doing stuff. They're making movies, so they're making stuff happen. So it's it's for more of a professional level. But the bottom line is, filmmaking stuff is for anybody that wants to finance a movie, produce a movie, distribute a movie. You know, and I think that on the producer movie end, you can find resources out there. There's resources online. You know, not plugging anybody else, but there's other resources online. But we have a great production course. But financing, raising money, and then selling. I don't think there's any other platform out there that addresses those two issues. It's like anybody can learn how to make a movie. You can go to film school, learn how to make a movie, and they're not going to know anything about financing and they're not going to know anything about sales because they're not in those fields. Since like silent films and and for, like for the course of American history, mm -hmm. uh, filmmaking has been uh, that one industry, like it's, it's America's largest export. You know, yeah. we, we put it out there. It doesn't... Uh, you know, you can go through economic turmoil. People are still making films. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it's a constant, constant, constant. So there's definitely a lot to be learned there. Yeah. I mean, our, uh, you know, I, I own a company called Glasshouse Distribution. That's a film sales and distribution company. And again, another example of working in the field. I'm, you know, I'm producing uh, videos, instructional videos on selling your movie. And I sell movies. And 2020, COVID year one and 2021, COVID year two were our two best years. So, you know, people were <laughs> sitting home and watching movies, so we needed to sell movies. And movies usually go up in economic downtimes because people want an escape, you know what I mean? They'd, they'd rather go see Spider-Man than think about the fact that they gotta pay their bills, and I get it. And it's a very cheap form of entertainment in the, in the grand scheme of things, but yes, America will always be number one in movies. There's no country that can usurp us as far as movies. It doesn't matter what you tell me. Bollywood makes more movies, Nollywood makes more movies, doesn't matter. No one's making Avengers except the U.S. That's you know that's the one thing U.S. can always hold high and say we're the kings of movies. You know. The so. um, I was gonna ask you. I was gonna ask you. You know, you can almost like look back, and look at any year and look at what films were made that year, mm -hmm. how what, what the sales figures were, and you could like almost look at what the economic situation was like during. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What do you think people will look back during 2020, 2021 and look at like our world? 
Okay, well, you mean, film-wise, you mean? Yeah. Well, the problem is, <laughs> unfortunately, it did affect, like, people were consuming more movies, meaning watching them on VOD and stuff, but they weren't making as many. So, because, you know, production was shut down, and they, they were trying to come back from that, and I think there are now, but I would say if you look specifically at 2020, and especially 2021, there were no great movies made, or at least not a wealth of great movies, because production was shut down and we were saying that as we're selling movies we knew there was going to be like this hole because it's like we're selling movies and, and they're buying them and the people are making them but then the content ran out because you still need that supply you know what i mean there was no um there were no new projects being made for a period of time because of the covid restrictions and they were blocking some movies from being made even the, even if you could follow the restrictions so um i would say they'd look back and say it was it was there weren't there wasn't as much content, but people were consuming it. I mean, like they were watching what they can, and they still watch what they can. You know, so, so. That's, they still do. And one they thing that's movie. interesting is that I mean, we made a movie. Yes, yep, we made a movie. Asked me to dance, which was great, and we pulled it off. Don't know how. We right in the middle of COVID, May yeah. of 2020. But the one thing I'll just say on, on a weird side note is that foreign content, and I'm not just going to say it's because of Squid Game, even though Squid Game is awesome, has gone up. If you go to Netflix, there's foreign content everywhere. And I think finally U.S. has accepted watching movies with subtitles. And that was not the case for the majority of this country. I have friends that watch movies. Oh, watch Squid Game. They watch this. They watch that. Oh, there's Dutch crime show or something like that. It's like they would have never done that even five years ago. What so. changed? Well, again, I'd say it's a lack of good content coming from the States. And so they would go... You know, I'm looking to find a new uh, thriller serial killer show. And it's like, well, this this came from the Netherlands. Let's watch that. And so I think that's kind of an interesting thing of the fact that things weren't being made. They were going to watch Squid Game, even though, like I said, Squid Game was amazing it was in amazing, itself. Amazing. Yeah, but maybe they would have never found it if there was a an equivalent type of show of Squid Game that was made in the U.S. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out at the same time what changed do you think it was like so? So basically, what you're saying is like it was. It was a. Uh, uh, we were. We had no other choice. Yeah, yeah. There was no other good content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you had successful good content in that foreign language, it made people excited about it, you know, and so they want to see the next good game. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. I wonder how that will affect American society in general. The fact that you're more open to to watching different content, different I, people. I would think. I would think and hope, and that's a great question because it's like maybe that would make people more open to international things. There's definitely a nationalism of Americans. Uh, David Lawrence and I, who co-wrote this movie we're doing now, Trauma Therapy Psychosis, uh, you know, with Hannah New, Courtney Warner, um, Jamie Scott Gordon, it's directed by Laurie Brewster, just a quick plug for Trauma Therapy Psychosis. But we were talking about the arrogance of Americans this morning at breakfast, yeah. and there was a great comedian who passed away, Patrice O'Neill, was, was commenting on Americans being so arrogant, and he was like, uh, our sports teams play other cities, yet we call ourselves the world champions. He's just like, you know, NBA, they don't play oh, yeah, the they world. Play they the play world. like, they, you know, they play Houston, they play Orlando, they play, it's like, how are they the world champions? Now, not that anybody could beat us in basketball, but, you know, it is funny that, that you know, that, that was his, he did a whole thing on that. And he did a whole thing on, at the time, George Bush was president, George W. Bush. And he said, everybody in here knows George W. Bush is president. He says, but like, you can't even tell me who's like the president of Italy. And he goes, and here's the best part. He goes, I don't care. And he says that you would ask, it's a great routine. I'm paraphrasing it. But he said he would ask like, you know, you gonna, do you know who the president of Italy is? And they'd be like, no, I don't know. And he'd be like, uh, well, it's so, he's like, no, no, I, I don't, I don't even care. And it's so true. Americans are like that. Now, maybe with this foreign content, 
they'll go, you know what? That's pretty cool how things operate in Italy. And this is pretty cool how Korea, I'd love to go to Korea and maybe it'll operate, it, it'll open us all to more of a worldview. I like that yeah. because, because we are like, especially with the metaverse and the NFT world, we're going to be in these worlds like yeah. the central end and sandbox yeah. with people where we don't know where they live or their borders. We don't know this, you know, their skin color or religion or mm -hmm. anything. It doesn't matter. So it's like a very interesting thing. And I think like society is going through, through this huge shift, but I want to talk it. about like yeah. NFTs in the metaverse, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you've been in filmmaking for, for decades. Yeah. I've been in uh, Bitcoin and crypto for decade plus, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, but everyone who's trying to do content, NFTs, film, music, mm. it seems like we've been meeting them. We've been, yeah. we've been, we've been seeing their decks. We've been talking to them. They're all getting it wrong. And it seems like content mm. is perfect. Like, like, you know, you have books and movies that could be the canon for these worlds. You can have mm. horror things. What are, what are they doing wrong? What is going on there? In life, the things that are established kind of, um, they're just established in the zeitgeist of society. I always think of it as like a cruise ship. And this is some of that story my dad told me, like a cruise ship is here. You can't go and turn that cruise ship around and sail it immediately the other direction. That's impossible, right? So your cruise ship, you have to slowly turn and it'll do this baby, big, big, long circle. And I think that the problem that people are going to NFT, which is great technology and new stuff, and I love that, is that they think they can immediately disrupt the film world and, and again, flip that cruise ship in the other direction is impossible. And the people that, yes, we've been talking to, that, oh, they want to change everything. They want to release a film just in the metaverse. And I love hearing that, but that is probably not going to happen. You know, and we've talked about when, if and when we're starting to delve into that and we are for, you know, putting things together in that way um, is to still focus on the smart core element, which would be making good content. And if you can value add this other stuff, that's the way to go. But it's kind of like just saying, you know, <laughs> imagine if you were to, you had another type of uh, personal computer that, uh, well, here's a perfect example. As much as I know about computers, like a Raspberry Pi, which is like a really, really cool thing. It's not going to take over Macs and PCs, but it does value add that I can take a teeny thing and this is my computer that I'm going to bring to Scotland with me, you know, or something like that. And I think that that's the best way to do it is just additive value. Um, you know, I always say can, it was in 2018, we had about six companies pitch us blockchain for films and their pitch, which we've also heard since then is, oh, well, you can keep everything on a ledger and, you know, and then you can get paid on this ledger. And I, you know, the person that first yeah. said that to me, I said, are you nuts? I said, Sony and Universal Lionsgate, they're not going to pay you on some blockchain <laughs> ledger. I go, the only thing you can use it for is the accounting of the making the movie. But if you have someone that is honest here it's like here here's the login of my chase account you know what i mean here's the accounting so it makes no sense to just go blockchain to movie but in Cannes in 2018 Cannes film festival we had all these companies all blockchain this and a coin for this movie and it, you're trying to disrupt immediately and it's not going to happen so, <clears> let's, <throat> yeah. so let's try to figure this out you know walk us through every aspect from making a film because obviously mm -hmm. if we can figure this out maybe we can disrupt it yeah because everyone else is trying out there Trillions of dollars yeah. trying to figure this out. <laughs> Walk us through, like, so you have an idea. where? How does a film, like, even get started? So it obviously, yes, yeah, starts from an idea, uh, but that's where most people stop. They go, oh, I get this great idea, and, you know. And uh, I always joke that also people watch movies and think, well, I could do that, you know. And it's like that's the equivalent of watching open-heart surgery and being like, I could do that. You're like, you need to learn and train uh, to get to the, you know, the level of being able to do that. So... 
the first thing you would need is a screenplay, which would be an asset, you know? And again, if you don't know how to write a screenplay, like we have a video course called Write Your Screenplay, <laughs> you know, that you can check out. And, uh, and there's, again, there's books on screenwriting. And the bottom line is, don't just jump into that and go, oh, I have an idea for a movie. Let me see if I can write something. You know, read screenplays is another thing. You read some of the, the best screenplays and know that. But the key is, once you have the screenplay, you have the asset. So now... That's the story, that's the thing that's going to be produced. And they could come from something else. It could be a book adaptation, it could be a graphic novel, it could be anything like that, but it needs to be in screenplay form. Now, and I'm really trying to get as basic as possible here, you have to raise financing for the movie, you have to cast the movie, and then you have to crew up the movie and uh, get ready to shoot it. Then you shoot the film. After that, there's a, a huge, long post-production process, the editing, the color, the sound, the visual effects, and then when you're done with that film, then you take it to the market, which would be through a sales company or distributor. A perfect, but funny enough thing that you said about disruption is that maybe five years ago, people thought they could self-distribute. And there were some companies that would help self-distribute, get your movie on Amazon, iTunes, and all that. And, you know, maybe there was one or two success stories like lottery tickets. And most people made $1,000 from their movie that they may have oh, wow. spent... 500 grand on it, and it was a big mistake. There's a disruption. I tell people, don't self-distribute. Go to a sales agent, go to a distributor, and, and that's the best way to do it. But that's the essence of start to finish. You know, idea, screenplay, financing, cast and crew, shooting, post-production, sales and distribution. That's like the whole timeline. Now, you look at that timeline, you say, what NFT aspects can I put into there? And, you know, the, there's two ways to look at NFTs that I think are the key ways is one is our NFTs collectibles, like meaning there's scarcity and there's something that somebody wants or our NFTs value adds, meaning if I have this, I can get into this show or I can get into this concert. You see what I'm saying? There's rare that they're almost both. Yeah. And I don't know the future of what, which one people will gravitate to more, you know? You know, we're, we're out here shooting a sequel. Mm -hmm. If, if on the first film, there was like an NFT fan relationship, would that help you make the second one differently? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that, look, we've also talked to a lot of places that they they want the audience to dictate the content, which I also think is a mistake. You know, it's like, if you were going to try to build this hotel, would you want to, you know, a million people giving you a choice on the, the, the color of the wallpaper? It's like, no, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> how about somebody that's an expert on wallpaper comes in and says, this is the wallpaper, you know, and, or an expert on art design. So, um I think that it, what it would have done is build a community, which is great, you know, but you could have done that on Kickstarter or we could have just social media built a community. Yeah, build a forum you know? or yeah, a you Facebook build, group yeah. or something. So, you know, if they hold the NFT, it in that regard, it would might be a scarcity, you know, it's like the board apes are valuable because of scarcity, you know, and, and, and promotion. But just like, it, it's a here's a perfect example. Um, I've had people try to pitch me on or, or ask me about... Um, product placement in movies right oh, yeah and the problem with product placement in movies and by the way there's a lot of scammers out there that try to say they'll product placed in your movies uh is that for your independent film that doesn't have an audience or doesn't have a market yet why should rolex watches give you a million dollars for your movie because it's like it may sit on a shelf and nobody and it may be a bad movie you know but the bottom line, Rolex doesn't want to do that. They want to go to, and they want to be the watch for the James Bond movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, because they know 3,000 theaters in the U.S. alone, you know, are going to play that movie. So you have to understand that with NFTs. And if you look, 
NFTs that are hit are usually the ones that are celebrity backed. You know, it's like uh, Eminem bought the bought the board ape. You know, Logan Paul stuff. And so the ones that Kim Kardashian is going to buy, they already have a social media following. So it may have been smart. Uh, if we were looking at NFTs for this movie to build up a social media following already, say we had a hundred thousand fans, trauma therapy, then you go and you do an NFT just for them. You know, we're in the UK mm -hmm. and there's a there's a queen and there's a whole royal family. Yeah. Are are celebrities our royalty? Of course, in the US, uh, there's a hundred percent. The same thing is like you know the celebrities are the royalty, and it's a very funny thing that you should say that is that if celebrities were every day you know and just around you saw them every day it would lose that luster <laughs> yeah, right. right and that's the problem with everybody voting on everything is it loses the luster so to speak uh historically movies about making movies have bombed in the box office and everywhere else and they there's never even the ones that like the player that you get bowfinger that you could point to that are really good movies bowfinger is a great movie did not make any money. You know, people don't wow. want to see the behind the scenes stuff. They want to see, you know, Project Greenlight failed miserably, you know. And and remember that Project Greenlight was about, you had Ben Affleck and Matt Damon finding the greatest script and getting this person and making a movie. The movie they made failed, you know what I mean? And it's like, oh. so the bottom line is people don't want to see that behind the scenes stuff. They want the royal people to be up here. They want to see them on People Magazine, you know what I mean? They want to see them, the blogs and stuff about them. And that makes them... Uh, very cool. A quick story on that. I, my buddy Michael Rodriguez is a, um, a great dance instructor out in Long Island. And I'd done the movie Love and Dancing. You know, I starred with Amy Smart, Billy Zane, Betty White. And uh, I, he pitched me as come teach a seminar on West Coast Swing and the Dance out there. We, I went to Long Island and I did a seminar and there was tons of people there and everybody was so excited. I made all this money from doing that. So I said, hey, Michael, let me come back and do this like a next month. Next month, it was like, it went down, right? And maybe it was about half the people. And then I went the third month, it was like a fifth of the really? people. And by that time, it's like, oh, you know, like the people that the first time were like, holy cow, you're from the movie and blah, blah, blah. This is crazy, famous guy. By the third time, it's like, oh, hey, great to see you again. You know what I mean? It was like, I'd lost the the, the luster and the, the exclusivity of coming yeah. down. You see what I'm saying? So I mean, you can't be too accessible as a star because then that makes you lose your mystique. Like the royals are not gonna just hang and you know and be like you hanging out all day. They they have to have that mixed but up. But social media didn't change that though. No, you know social media is still it's they're still on a pedestal, but maybe they'll communicate yeah. more with fans. But you know, post Malone or somebody like that, he's not texting back everybody that texts him. You know what I mean? It's like you, you see their Instagram, there'll be you know fifty thousand comments. You know, maybe one or two he might respond to. Yeah. You know what I mean? But uh, not fifty thousand of them. <laughs> Everyone watching and listening right now is probably saying like, you know, Tom has got a shit together. He understands filmmaking, crypto really well. But you've had a crazy life. Yeah. You know, you've had a crazy life, and mm -hmm. you learned from all of the, you know, like what advice can you give to the listeners? What can you teach them about? like during the negative times and the sad times, how to like bring yourself back up? The, the interesting part is, the lesson that I'm gonna say is a very tough one to adhere to. It's that, that short stack shoot. player. What's that? I said shoot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's enjoy the journey, which is very tough to say when you're not making some money on it, right? You know, and it's like, just enjoy the journey as you're like getting evicted from your your, <laughs> your yeah. house. But you know, it, the, the bottom line is, it. Um, when I started to go, I really love the fact that we're free. And look at David. He's out here. He's been giddy since day one, you know, because he can just make a movie. And that's his life. And that those are great things. So when you're pursuing your dream, you have to enjoy the journey because 
don't just think of money as the only thing. Uh, one lesson that I learned the hard way is living above my means. When I first moved out to LA, oh God, you would have think I had a billion dollars, the house I lived in and all this stuff. And it, that that makes it a little bit more stressful. And that's when you have to take jobs because it's like, I need to pay, I have this monthly nuts. So don't live above your means. But the other thing is, it, you know, I've said it before, that Jim Carrey thing, when I just did a video on Facebook about quitting a corporate job 22 years ago, an IT job, um, you can fail at the safe job. If anybody out there is listening and thinks that, um, you know, let me take this job to be safe. And I brought up Jim Carrey because he, he gave a speech where he said his dad was a great comedian, but he took a job as a plumber because it was the safe choice from his family. Then he got fired from that. Oh. And Jim Carrey realized at that moment, if you could get fired from the safe choice, why not take the risk? So to me, it's like if you're listening out there and your dream is to be in crypto or your dream is to be an NFT and your dream is to be in film um, or maybe all of it, why not take the risk? Because you can fail at the, the safe job, the safe job. But in fact, the safe job will get rid of you in a heartbeat if they want yeah, to. You true. know what I mean? So why not take the risk It's it, and enjoy that journey? If you're on a journey where you're self-employed, Every once in a while, zoom out and go, man, this is a great damn life. Like the life that we're le leading is so great because we have the freedom. We don't need to call somebody and be like, I got to take off tomorrow. Bullshit. That's nothing in our lives, you know? This is it, our yeah, job, right? This here. is it. This is our job, you know? And so that's a great feeling. So for advice, and the again, ups and downs. I mean, you know, I had early success, then I had a period of, uh, you know, and it was like up and down and up and down. And so um, it all changed when I said, I'm going to get happy. Um, a, a buddy of mine who lost over 100 pounds and he had yo-yo dieted up and down for all these years and was like a fat person and now is looked at as a skinny person. I'll tell you who it is afterwards. But uh, I asked him one time, what was your secret that finally it worked? And his answer, I got happy. And it was just like he just started enjoying working out and eating differently for his body and he got happy doing that. And that was what worked. Fell in love with the, the process. With the journey. Yeah, yeah. That's such a beautiful thing. The grind. So what's this movie about that we're doing here? Do you watch a sequel? You watch the first one? Yeah, trauma therapy. The best way to describe it, and I guess why I fit in the role so much, is it's like a uh, what if there the the concept was what if there was an evil Tony Robbins, right? So meaning when somebody comes to a Tony Robbins seminar, they're dying to learn. So what if this person had potential evil intentions? So. The plot of the first one was these four people that have all these problems in their life come to this famous motivational speaker's retreat and things start to go awry when there's drugs and there's knives and there's guns introduced and they realize they may be, have to fear for their life. Yeah. In this sequel, it is a, it's a, we've turned up the volume, so to speak, and now Tobin has been exiled to the UK because his US operation, the authorities are closing in on, and he's starting a new cult out here. But these people also have problems, and this time it is even more intense. Uh, and it's, that's why it's trauma therapy psychosis. So will they be cured in the end? I guess we'll have to find out. <laughs> Tell me more about filmmaking stuff, HQ. I, yeah. want, I want my listeners to like benefit from you being an educator, but also being in on, on the yeah. street and being there. And it's not just mm -hmm. because I want them to know film. Mm -hmm. I want the listeners to understand deeply how other industries work, not just ours. Because 
unfortunately, we all live in this like echo chamber. We live yeah. in a crypto bubble where we believe that we're the best mm -hmm. in everything that we're doing, but there's a whole world out there. Yeah. I mean, anybody that's big in crypto could be, I mean, obviously they could be involved in a film, but maybe they want to do a documentary. Maybe they want to do some type of TV series about crypto. It's like, great. Here's, you got to learn how to do it. And the best way would be to learn the core kind of elements. Now, I have a YouTube channel, Filmmaking Stuff YouTube channel, and I give free stuff on it. I mean, literally, I just record videos five minutes long, and some are as simple, like I have a series called Film Set Terms. Like, what is a gaffer? You know what I mean? What is a best boy? What are these and that? And I just explain stuff like that. Or I'll give short answers to questions that we get incoming. When you join the membership, Filmmaking Stuff HQ, you have access to, I think we have 14 different video series modules that all have, you know, up to 20, uh, 30 videos in there that are just digestible lessons on filmmaking, right? And so on film financing and stuff like that. Like we have one called Find Film Investors that literally goes down the process of where to source film investors, how to pitch. We have something called Movie Plan Pro. It is the most popular biz film business plan that there is in the industry right now. I created it about say 16 years ago and then refined it. And when you talk about working on the street, maybe if I wasn't, like there's people that have written books on business plans and their credentials where they went to Harvard Business School or something like yeah. that. I'm, yeah, and they're, they're writing film business plans, ridiculous. But my business plan, I pitched it to investors and then an investor would go, I wanna hear these details. So I go, okay, I need to add that page. Then I don't need this, oh. I would remove that page. So it was actually refined and made better. And now you go to movieplanpro.com, you buy that business plan. That is all these years of experience of actually pitching investors, you see? So if I was just an educator, I would go, well, this is what I think investors want. But now I'm a person that actually pitched investors and tried to refine and make it better. Does that, you see what I'm saying? Like, that's the difference. What was your, uh, what was your favorite project that you did? As far as making a movie? Yeah. Oh gosh, I would say, well, you know, not to just be, because you're interviewing me. I would say Ask Me To Dance is probably one of my favorites because um, it's, because I directed it. It was my yeah. first time I had done, at the time, Brilliant. 17 movies. Uh, thank you. And uh, starred in a bunch of films and I'd written 30 plus screenplays and, and, and Options Soldier made me movies, 25 of those screenplays. And so uh, I had had all this experience, but I'd never directed before. So it was the first time directing and really putting a film on my shoulders and, and trying to, you know, get it to the finish line. So that was a great feeling. I'll also say that my first movie, The Attic, was, was the film that the first movie where I raised the financing, did it, I co-starred with Elizabeth Moss. Um, it was the director of Pet Cemetery. Alexander Daddario was in it. And uh, that was a, that was always cool because it was my first accomplishment. Like I look back at that movie, it's not my proudest movie. You know what I mean? It's not my yeah. biggest, but it's the it was the first one I got done. So the first one will always be special, but uh, I would say Ask Me To Dance is the one that I'm the most proud of to this day. Oh, I, actually, remind me, you, you said something earlier about screenplays, reading screenplays. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, what like top three screenplays do you think everyone should read? Well, here's, I, I have an answer for that, but I'll also say this, is that po most people, and I talk about that in writing, writing the screenplay, write your screenplay, which is one of our video modules, is that people want to learn all these aspects of screenwriting, but they don't read screenplays. Like, that's ridiculous. It's like trying to learn how to be a boxer and never stepping in the ring or, you know, never watching other boxing matches. You know, it's crazy. It's like, or, I always call it learning to swim on a chalkboard. You know, that's impossible. So with the screenplays, it, it, the, the top three that I, what I can give you some uh, examples of great screenplays, but what I would say is that if you want to write a horror movie, read, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, read The Conjuring, read, you know, um, which you call it, the one that I love, Drive Me to Hell. Read those three screenplays, and I'm just throwing them out there as examples, um, because that will be in your genre. If you want to write an action movie, uh, if you want to write a drama, 
to this day, and I at the point where I at that point I'd sold like maybe twenty screenplays because uh, this was a couple. Of, this was maybe six or seven years ago. Somebody asked me to write this drama that had a voiceover, and I'd never written a voiceover before. So I went and I found, um, and I don't remember the name of the movie, which was Judy Dench and Kate Blanchett, and there was a voiceover. I found that screenplay. There's an actual site called oh. the Internet Movie Script Database, IMSDB, and found that screenplay and read it because I went, I haven't written a voiceover before, you know? So let me see how someone else lays that out, a successful movie. So if you're gonna read screenplays, don't start with your friend's screenplays and amateur screenplays. Start with the ones that are successful and the best, read those. Earlier you were saying about um, directing. Why challenge yourself? Like if you've done so many things, you know, you know, you you're a trifecta or whatever. I know exactly that the answer there is that if any film that I'd made, like The Attic was my first film, and the reason I said you know I wasn't as proud of it, but it was a great feeling, was that here's my vision, here's the final product, and that was maybe five percent of my vision. And as the movies went on. Uh, Alphabet Killer was probably only 20% of my vision because I wasn't the director and I wasn't I didn't put the movie on my shoulders. Love and Dancing, maybe 40% of my vision. Yeah. So it was getting up there. And then I did a movie called Hashtag Screamers, which I loved. And that was getting close. That was like 80% of my vision. And I said, I want a movie that's 100% of my vision where I can make the decisions and I can go, this is the music that I want in here. And this is the, so for me, it was, let me see, and especially comedy. I've been doing comedy since I was a kid. Uh, you know, I graduated from the IO West film school, which is, I mean, uh, improv school, which isn't even there anymore. And I said, let me put all my skills in there because if it fails, then it's on me, you know? And it's like, that is an interesting feeling. If I was having you direct the movie and it failed, I could always be like, ah, if Charlie had just done this or that, you know what I mean? And so I think that that I wanted to experience putting something on my shoulders and making at least close to the vision. Obviously it's not exact because there's different financing and, and things and you know, like maybe I would have wanted, you know, 300 people in the final dance. It's not exactly that, but it's 95% of the vision that I had for the movie. A lot of people can't trust <clears throat> themselves though, their yeah. own vision. Yeah, a lot of people can't like, I, I would almost want to have like a hedge, another person involved to help make decisions. But I guess over the years that you've, you've been through that so many times, you started as an actor, yeah, and then you went off doing producing and directing everything else. Yeah, then you came back to acting. Why did you leave acting originally? Well, because for an actor, that's a tough business where if you're just focused on that to just make it, especially these days, you know, and you, there has to be a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, and obviously people. it still takes persistence. But what happened was I wanted to say I had started a movie called Gravesend in '98, and we shot it in the streets of Brooklyn, improvised the whole movie. And I was like maybe the second or third biggest role. And it went, uh, Oliver Stone produced it, it was in theaters. It was a great street, like Brooklyn movie. And what happened was I got these great auditions, but I was going against already established stars. Like I remember people beating me out, Ryan Felipe, Scott Wolf, I would lose roles too. I remember Audition I had the- for the Waterboy, you said? The, I auditioned for the Waterboy and he put his best friend in that role. And it was like, you know, <laughs> yep, yeah. And so I was way funnier, by the way. And so there was all these things. And then I realized I wasn't getting the roles. And so was, and I could have passed the time, gone into the tech world, and that would be the end of it. But I said, instead of leaving, let me learn every other aspect of movie making and ultimately to create my opportunities. So when I first did The Attic, I was wanted to prove that I was as good as Elizabeth Moss, as Elizabeth Moss which is a great actress and, uh, and could even be better than her in a film like would really bring it. And um, so that was a big thing for me. So producing was almost like a means to an end. Raise the money. And I hired Amy Schoff and Eisen Robbins, who are two uh, veteran producers, still friends to this day. And 
I shut my mouth up and tried not tried to pretend that I knew what producing was. But in watching them, observational learning, and I learned quick, uh, I just started getting better and better and better. And by the time I'd say by my sixth movie, which was Ashley, uh, Dean Ronalds and Brian Ronalds, I, I, Brian Ronalds was my producing partner in that movie, I was the man in charge. Like, yeah. I knew what I was doing. And now I've been through so much stuff. Like, I just know how this is going to work and that's going to work. And you can never foresee every problem. And there's always new personalities you're dealing with. But... As in anything in life, as you know from being in the crypto world, experience is, is key. It took you yeah. six movies to really feel confident that you knew what you were doing? Yeah, yeah. Holy shit, I got to do four more movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. no that's an, it, just to make just to be clear. We work together. Yes, no, yeah. <laughs> There's a, just to be clear, that movie, I was the main guy. You see what I'm saying? It took me six movies to be the one where I went, now I run the show as the senior producer. Prior to that, I was smart enough to hire different senior producers that I could be like, well, that's Geisen. You know what I mean? Like, because, it, you know, it's like meaning. So if there was a movie you were doing without me, you know what I mean? It might take you six where you're just like, yeah. I'm doing my own thing and I'm the man. You know what I mean? Like that, that might be a little tougher. <laughs> so, yeah. Does that Speaking make sense? Speaking of which, um, one of my favorite actors of all time just passed away, Betty White. You worked with her very closely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have any good stories? Oh, she was great. You know, we <laughs> we did uh, the movie Love and Dancing. We we had a great scene together. And what happened was we were able to get her in this scene. It was just a quick scene um, where she's dancing with me and she hits on me. And she said she put, was putting her hands all over my chest, which that alone is just fantastic. And she's her lines in there, I don't remember the whole thing, but she says, um, uh, oh, it was great. And as she's putting her hand on my chest, she said, I'm going to do that. And I'm like, great. And you could see me kind of like, all right, pulling the hands off. And uh, I said, oh, what are you, like, uh, you know, 65 now or something like that? You know, and she goes, I'm 72, you know, and lies about her age. And then she goes, I got to get laid tonight, which was in the script. It was just, but just hearing it come out of her mouth oh and she God. had a bad mouth. It was so funny. And like everybody, she was everybody's grandma on set. It was great to work with her. Yeah. Tom Malloy, filmmaking stuff, <laughs> bankroll, trauma therapy, to, psychosis, yeah. ask me to dance. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on Untold Stories. We're here at the Oswald House in Scotland. We're going to be doing the next episode. So we got this this whole studios <clears throat> yeah. out there that we're shooting. We got old churches, theaters. Yeah. Hex Studios. Hex Studios. Mm -hmm. It's going to be crazy. We're going to be bringing all the listeners from set. We've got our microphones and our whole podcast set up here. So thanks for coming on the Great. show. Great. Anytime. Happy to be there. And uh, crypto forever. <laughs>